Here we go. Ready? Take three. <laughs> Would you like me to do it? If you want to, but I, 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 I don't. Give me one more try, and if I okay. fuck it up for you, you can, you, you can come in and fix me. Ready? Welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of this podcast, which is It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. Hello, Josephine. Well done at getting through that tongue twister this time. And depending on how I edit it, the listeners will know that or won't. (laughs) But this was not necessarily take one. (laughs) How are you today? Knackered. I'm completely knackered, but I'm excited to talk to you, Dr. J, as always. It's been a long week, a very long week. Uh, some of the details are personal, so I shan't share, but um, I've also been really busy and hopefully exciting busy. But It's also been a week on my end. It's been a week. It has been a week. There's a fucking pandemic out there. Everyone knows that just the merest extra bit of admin turns your week from Okay, too. It's been a week. People are going to be really sympathetic and empathetic with the added complication of we're still fighting a fucking pandemic and so, fucking transphobia. I'm not sure which is worse. <laughs> Both pandemics for a start. Oh, yeah. And um, they've got really math acronyms. That's true. <laughs> that's really good. Yes, it's been a week. And I think that should be terminology now. Or it could be just it's a week in 2020 or it's 2020. How are you just think it's 2020? How are you, Doctor? Oh, hello, cat. Oh, see, we started recording and the cat just comes popping on in. I gave myself the job title Harbinger of Change. I work at Footworks, or a bespoke software consultancy, and allow people to give themselves really fabulous job titles. I gave myself the gender transgressive non-binary gender queer, and thanks to the New Zealand government, I got to write a statutory declaration and have that as my official gender with the New Zealand government. Self-ID for the win. And what else am I? Oh, I'm a troublemaker, as if you couldn't tell, and a hashtag queer nuisance because branding. Actually, question for people listening. We have a Twitter. If you'd like us to do something. We have a what? A Twitter. A Twitter. A twit. We have a Twitter. Contact us. Please let us know if you'd like a t-shirt that says because branding. So Josephine, what the hell are you? What the hell am I? I the hell am an independent scholar, activist, and artist. I like to make a spectacle of myself upon the stage and as a visual artist on the internet. I like to think of myself as a queer without portfolio because unemployment. That's me. We got there in the end. We did. It was if, a journey. And the last bit of business before we actually get onto the topic at hand, if you like what we're doing here at the moment, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash it is complicated or one word and help us make more fabulous things happen and in the meantime dr chan what are we talking about this week ah so we came up with the topic transnormativity mm-hmm. which is an interesting topic for both of us one of the things that i think josephine will try and cover is what is the normative narrative around being a binary trans person and then the other question is 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 there a narrative around being a non-binary person is there a normative narrative for non-binary i don't believe that either of us are normative for any value of normative this is a fair and true point do you want to start off with explaining what the kind of normative 
trans narrative is. I think it's worth defining in our terms anyway. The idea that there is a single narrative or a normative narrative for trans identity, and I use the word identity here, I prefer talking about trans subjectivities. The reason I started talking about trans subjectivities in the first place was because I didn't think there was a trans identity singular. I thought there were many trans subjectivities because I don't think there's one way of being us. That was in response to the notion that there was a singular idea or a singular narrative or a singular trans identity. And I've come across this in several ways over the last couple of decades. When I first came out as trans, I came across this notion of a singular trans narrative on what was quite early internet. That tells you how long ago that was. And in trans, now I'm going to use the word transvestite support groups because that's the word they used at the time. I went to support groups because I realized I was trans. I realized I needed help. And I went to a support group to get that help. Unfortunately, when I was there, I found that the people who were there had a very specific idea of what being trans was, specifically what being a transvestite was. And they insisted that that's what I was and that I followed that narrative. And I didn't want to. I didn't think it related to who I was. Nothing against it. I just didn't think I was it. And at the time, they wanted to give me a feminine sounding name. Uh, I refused. And that caused consternation. (laughs) I also came across the notion of transnormativity in academia because, of course, instead of coming out as trans, as anybody who's reasonable <laughs> would do, I started reading about it before I did. Because, of course, as an academic scholarly type, what do you do when you realize you are trans? You go to the library <laughs> and read about it in books, which is exactly what I did. And I found a very singular trans narrative there as well. And I realized that's not me either. I don't follow this story. I don't have this experience. Does that mean I'm not trans? It's a genuine question I had. I'm like, I don't really fit into this group, this support network I find. I don't fit in these books that I'm reading. I didn't know any other trans people. And the internet wasn't broad enough yet to give me that much diversity in trans narratives there either. So what I ended up doing was writing about it myself. And I came out as, at the time, was called gender queer, I guess, or non-binary wasn't a phrase that was being used at the time. And I chose that moniker in part because I just didn't know what I was. I just didn't relate to the narratives I found. And the narratives that I found were, for example, you always knew that you were trans and you hate your body and you especially hate your genitals and you can't imagine having sex with anyone. And you are incredibly traditionally gendered in the sense of the quote, opposite binary gender. And that's where you want to go and you want to be read a cis and you want to live as a heterosexual cis woman would and you don't want anybody to ever know that you were trans in the first place and that's your dream now i'm not saying all trans life experience it's some trans people's experience for sure but it wasn't mine and since there were no other alternatives i had to come up with my own sort of version of that and it was really difficult because i knew that i was transish I just didn't know what I was because even the word that was supposed to be for me wasn't really for me. Is this the medicalized model of trans because for a long time was the only way to really be seen as yourself or or to be seen as trans? There was lots of that narrative that I struggled with when I was 
coming onto the scene 15 or so years ago and becoming aware of this whole narrative and aware of this whole idea of not being the gender I was told I was and wasn't fitting me, but I didn't know what else there was to be. But a lot of the narratives were around, you have to do this thing. And I'm like, but this thing doesn't feel like me. That always felt like the trans normative narrative, like you said, was around that relationship with your body at different periods of time and the relationship with different parts of your body. I think that we both rubbed into a similar narrative being said in different ways. We come at it from slightly different angles in the sense that, like I said, I'm a scholarly nerd. So, of course, my response to all this was to write a paper and do research and not actually to address the issue with myself until much later. Whereas you reflected it on the personal level and I sort of did that scholarly thing. In fact, actually, that is somewhere I can at least direct to some of that research is that this is going to be a sort of amalgam of a few things. There's a couple of writers I'm going to mention right now. And then there's also my version of this. So this is somewhat a collection of my thoughts on this, but I'll try to cite the people who led me to that conclusion. Like I can cite anybody, so please be the academic. Well, I'll put it this way. This transnormativity that occurs, it's a very particular story that you and I don't match up to. Why is there this story? Why is there a singular idea of what a trans person is? How did it come about and who wrote it? I think it's exactly one author and it comes from one book. The person who wrote that narrative down is called Harry Benjamin. And he wrote it down in a book called the, oh, I want to say it's called The Transsexual Phenomenon. And it came out in 1966. He wrote a book in which he described what the trans narrative was and how it should be treated. And that was because he was trying to advocate for the medical helping basically trans people to transition in a binary fashion. The most notable case at the time was Christine Jorgensen, who had transitioned very publicly and was used very much as the case study of this, in the sense that Harry Benjamin also did the foreword for her autobiography. That's how much they were sort of linking their narratives together. Harry Benjamin insisted that trans people were very traditionally gendered, just the opposite to the one they were assigned at birth. So if you're a trans woman, you were born into, quote, the wrong body. That's one of the sort of tropes that you'll hear. The person was born into the wrong body. They should have been born into a cis female body, but they weren't. And as such, they present a very traditionally cis female gender. So they are heterosexual as a cis woman. They are traditionally gendered. They want to wear skirts and they want to be housewives and they want to be subservient and they don't want to like sex and you name it, they want it in a very traditional way. This is the gender they represent. They hate their own bodies to the point of perhaps damaging those bodies. And as such, Harry Benjamin argued that these people should be given hormone and surgical treatments in order to become the women that they are. And consequently, trans men basically was the same thing, but just going in the quote opposite direction, scare quotes. Trans healthcare, all gender dysphoric diagnosis, and most gendered identity clinics in most countries were based on these teachings and the people who followed and his colleagues. And the thing about that book is it was written in a context. The person I'm going to cite now is Susan Stryker, who's a trans academic and writer who 
very interestingly did the foreword to the 2000 edition of Christian Jorgensen's autobiography, in which Susan insists that actually Christine Jorgensen's autobiography, which reads very much as the narrative I just described, is a complete and utter lie. <laughs> Maybe not complete, but Christine Jorgensen liked a lot of sex. And Susan Stryker insists that the narrative that Christine Jorgensen wrote in conjunction with Harry Benjamin and his work was specifically designed in order to justify the treatments that they were arguing for in a hostile social environment. So it's in the 60s. Psychoanalysis was incredibly hostile to trans people being treated this way. The government was incredibly hostile. <laughs> I mean, nothing has changed. The society was incredibly hostile. So they had to justify it. So what they ended up doing was, no, 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 trans people are just like everyone else, just in this way. And that's how they justified the treatment. Unfortunately, it worked too well. And that became the only way in which trans people were being defined, they were being treated medically, and were being diagnosed legally. So that narrative became incredibly prescribed. And the worst part was, anybody who was researching trans people would be researching them in a clinical setting. People who had been diagnosed on the basis of that book and narrative, and therefore presented an extremely, how should we say, homogenous narrative, so that researchers would say, look, this phenomenon is, not only is it real, it's incredibly consistent. Everybody's mm. like this. Except for, of course, they didn't realize that trans people can read. <laughs> and we knew that that's how they were diagnosing us. And we read their one book and we reproduced it. <laughs> because, of course, we did. Because we needed to get what they had. And so the research that initially was made was done so to justify something politically. The research that followed was based on that piece of research and everything else was based on this singular narrative. Now, that's not the entirety of it, but if you want to know where that comes from, a good chunk of it is originally a socially, politically useful narrative that unfortunately went a little too far. I know Christine Byrne's book, Trans Britain, Coming Out of the Shadows, covers a lot of that similar narrative and explains the reason for like press for change and the birth certificate changes and things like that. Again, it's in that narrative of born in the wrong body, wanting to always be stealth and moving within the binary. And her book is brilliant, super well researched, and it's got chapters written by a whole pile of different people, some of who I know. And they do very well at explaining those political landscapes, looking back now at 50, 70 plus years of all of these political manoeuvres and changes. Because I think one of the things we need to remember when we're discussing the why of the 1960s is homosexuality was also illegal. It's not just that it was illegal and you would lose your job. You could also be declared insane. You could be put into hospital. You could have all of these horrific treatments done to you because it was seen as a mental illness, which is, again, why trans easily fits into that. The medicalized model is something that we can treat. You can treat homosexuality by zapping them in the brain. You can treat transness by doing these things, giving them some hormones, allowing these particular changes. Oh, look, they run away happy and heterosexual. Yeah, That's, that was basically it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've summarized all of Josephine's talking to about 30 seconds. But yeah, basically what Jay's saying is absolutely right. The, the example I gave is one example from the USA and specifically how that narrative did 
cross international lines, but is only one version of it. So there's a couple of what I hear of as kind of non-binary narratives. And I'm not saying any of these are wrong. I'm not offering any subjectivity on these, any sense of that these are wrong or right or better or worse than any others. So there is a narrative of I did the binary transition because it meant that I got the medical things that I wanted. And then when I'd had the changes that I wanted to my body and I got to change my birth certificate, I then identified as non-binary. So one of the things of that narrative, especially in the UK, means that you are protected with your gender under the Equalities Act of 2010 because you've undergone gender reaffirmation surgery. I believe it's now currently termed within the legally stuff. And so that is a path that a lot of people, I feel, take in some ways. I know quite a lot of trans-masculine people who take some testosterone, maybe potentially have top surgery, and then that allows them to feel more like themselves, more non-binary. There's also a narrative that comes through in some of the popular culture of non-binariness is a person wearing a skirt and makeup when you wouldn't expect them to in a very gender non-conforming way. There is also a non-binary narrative that to be non-binary, you need to be relatively able to do androgyny in some way. And again, it's about that relationship to your body. Those were the kind of narratives. And those are the kind of non-binary narratives. But again, they're played up against this trans narrative, this transnormative narrative of you go from being this to being that. You hated your body. You want to change your body. Your body is not something you, you want to have any kind of pleasure in. I have gone from completely disliking my body and understanding that level of dysphoria was never about gender. You can hate your body and not have gender dysphoria. You can not have a good relationship with your body for so many myriad reasons. And one of the things that I'm working on is getting a better relationship back with my body. And sorry to veer off, but that hatred of self doesn't have to be around gender. And that I think is an interesting thing to play around with inside of this whole normativity because my relationship to my body and the mental health impacts on that were kind of not dismissed, but even in our community, put them aside as it's about your gender. And it's like, no, my gender's never been the problem. (laughs) My relationship to the sexy parts of my body has never been quite the problem as a relationship to my body overall. They're all related. I mean, that's why these topics are so difficult Mm. to parse. I started talking about Harry Benjamin and the origin of this narrative. I mean, that's just a version of this. And you're talking about body narratives, body view, body, you know, physicality and the relationship to it as a general process. And I think that's because this is part of that. That's the white gender is a complicated thing because it exists in and of the body at the same time. It's not one thing, it's both at the same time. And so when you talk about cultural notions of body image and your own psychological and sociological relationship to it, of course, that's going to come into this. And that's what I'm saying, that the quote-unquote trans-normative narrative is one of those narratives, just mm. as the other narratives you just talked about having to confront or having to deal with. This is another one of those. 
or it's one that intersects those in some very specific ways. But it doesn't mean that they're unrelated. Far from it. I think your tangent isn't a tangent. I think it's a really good example of another way of looking at the same thing. And I think they're all interconnected as well because that medicalized journey informs the non-binary journey so much still at the moment. And it's very hard to have a non-binary identity outside of that medicalized journey. There are people who do it in different ways outside of the binary ways. Because sometimes when I say non-binary, I'm talking about the gender non-binary. And sometimes when I say non-binary, I'm talking about the pool of genders that are nowhere near the binary. Because you've got things like agender, pangender, flexigender. You're right. These terms come from all sorts of areas and times. For example, when I was talking about transvestite support groups, that's because they were called transvestite support groups. And the narrative that I described from 1966 that was still prevalent today was called the transsexual narrative, specifically. Transgender was another word that was just about to sort of gain some sort of notoriety and popularity in part was known as sort of an umbrella term for transvestite, transsexual, transness, and was a term that was used to describe people who were non-binary or someone who was in the middle of the binary or outside the binary. One was transgender. That then became genderqueer during my coming out time. And now non-binary and many other terms. Because as you rightly say, the word non-binary, first off, it doesn't necessarily describe your personal experience, but also it can be conflated with a number of other things. So when we want to talk about anything outside of the gender binary, one might use the word non-binary. So in that sense, I'm outside the gender binary, but I don't consider myself a non-binary person. I consider myself a trans person. I actually consider myself as a trans woman. As such, I'm a binary trans person, but I don't deny my transness. So I'm outside of that binary. And since I didn't transition from one to the other, because that was the terminology we used before. It's really difficult to describe this experience, but every time we try to nail it down, it turns into one experience and it creates an in and an out group. The notion that you are this or you aren't. Mm. And that's the biggest problem. It isn't necessarily what that narrative is, no matter how positive it is. If you create that narrative as a singular narrative and you give it a word that is a singular word that means one thing, you will exclude people who would otherwise be included in that terminology. This is why I think transnormativity is such an interesting normativity to start to uncover, because it's got a language and a narrative that does have an in and out group around the language that you use about the way that you express yourself. It also has, and especially in the UK, it has a certain privilege aspect to it, which is why I find all the normativities have a little bit of privilege aspect to it. In the UK, if you go through the medicalized path of the binary genderness, you go speak to the gender identity clinic and all of that, you end up with some paperwork that basically means that people cannot discriminate against you legally on the basis of your gender. Me, on the other hand, because I have not gone through this way of becoming non-binary and I have not gone through those steps, I've just kind of, and it's not that I woke up one day and went, way, this is what I am. We know that I spent some time figuring this out. Because I did it that way, I have no privilege in my gender expression. So if somebody wishes to discriminate against me on the basis of my gender, on the basis of my gender identity and my gender expression, I do not have the protection of the Equalities Act in any way to 
say to that employer, say to that housing people, say to anyone, say to that hospital, you have mistreated me under this act, you shall be prosecuted and they go, oh no, we shall fix ourselves. That is a privilege and I think that's one of the things that transnormativities is an interesting way of understanding that there are layers of privilege within the the wider trans umbrella community where there are some people because of the way that they are, whether it's by money or however they do it, if they don't go the route via the gender identity clinics and the paperwork and they're trans or gender non-conforming or non-binary in some other way, they do not have protection under the law and are thus more vulnerable in the specific little privilege area. You put that really, really well. There's lots of problems with the transnormative narrative. <laughs> there are a lot of problems with the transnormative narrative, one of which being quite literally legal. So you can determine who gets what health care. It can determine who gets to define this way at all socially. And most certainly it can determine your legal rights. This is how problematic this is. This is how serious this is. And if you want to talk about having to navigate that. I wrote an article for Lambda Nordic, and this is where I'm going to plug myself. I mean, it's a freely available article. You can just look it up online about how I had to navigate these laws in order to get myself registered in the gender that I was and to have a child. You'd be surprised how difficult that was and how I had to literally cross borders to do it and register myself in two separate countries. That's what it took. Yes, I'm very aware that I have a certain amount of privilege because I'm a trans-binary person. However, knowing that, I also had to navigate it very, very carefully. And I had to make my choices based on the notion that I know that in England, being a trans-binary person means one thing. In Sweden, it meant another thing. And 10 years later, it means something else again. When that narrative shifted in a specific country, I can do something interesting with my rights. When I say interesting, I mean important. And when I say important, I mean life-affirming, life-threatening, <laughs> like that level of important. Your existence can be defined by such a narrow notion of what is a narrative of your subjectivity. And that's why I talk about subjectivities and why I talk about it that way, because we are no one thing. We just aren't. We're not a homogenous group. We're not even members of something that is broadly consistent. Our gender identities are myriad. Now, we may have to talk about it in certain generalizations. That's why the word trans is still not useful as a catch-all term for all of our subjectivities. It doesn't cover non-binary people. It tends to leave out certain trans identities even. It tends to leave out several subjectivities and tends to convey a notion that people think they know what it is when you say trans and you may mean something completely different. So one of the things that I find interesting in the workplace is the moment you bring up trans, everyone's like, oh, we've got a transition at work policy. And it's like, that's fantastic. No. That's not the only way that somebody can be trans. And I think people also try to capture it and thinking about data capture, because that's part of what I do, because that's part of my geek as a business analyst is around helping people understand data, helping people understand who their customers are, who they're talking to and things like that. And one of the interesting things that people have come up with is this notion of like saying, 
what is your gender? And they give you a number of options and occasionally I prefer not to say. And I now also insist upon putting in a stateless style so that people can put in what gender they want. But then they insist on asking the next question. Is this the gender you were assigned at birth? And it's like, so you're asking me that some random doctor when I was a newborn baby of, you know, minutes old, looked at me and just went, based on the wibbly bits there, this child is going to grow up to be one of these things. So you need to socialize them like this. So we've discussed several angles to this, you know, where this transnormativity comes from, what the problems of it is, especially what the legal and social problems are. There's even more to this. And part of me is a little bit reticent to go into this further. I think it's a good one to turn into a two or three parter. Yes, we may have to revisit this. Like a lot of the stuff, because I think there's a lot more around the problems of transnormativity. But I think just dropping in the idea of transnormativity and giving a light brush on where it comes from and the ideas of it and how it impacts both of us. Dear listener, this really is a huge topic. And I know we say that a lot, but in this particular case, there are actually several things that I want to go into. One of them being, how is this narrative used by those who are transphobic against us? How is this narrative recreated by them to insist that this is in fact who we are and what we're like, and this is why we're a problem. So for example, the supposed feminist anti-trans argument has been, trans people want to reproduce a gender binary that's really, really problematic. That was the first try at this. Mm-hmm. Now that particular argument is resurfaced, but it's slightly different. And they're still using that same notion against us. Now they're saying that singular trans narrative is homophobic as well, which is a wonderful leap of logic. But that's one aspect. The other aspect being, what is it like to be someone who doesn't follow that narrative, trying to find out who you are, which was my case, Does that narrative still exist now? And then the question that I was going to ask, Jay, and I think we might have to return to, is, is there a non-binary narrative now? If there is, what is it? And then we have to look at sort of what that does to the law, how that could be incorporated into law in a way that would not cause this in and out group, that would not exclude others. Is there a way to do that? Can we actually create a sense of trans and non-binariness that includes the majority of subjectivities and how would one do that and what activism and legal action follows from that, as well as what sociological changes, what happens to our community. And the thing that I was doing 15 years ago, I was doing a performance and this is how I met dear Auntie Kate. I did a performance on identity borders and identity wars, the wars between, and I did this very pompous British general discussing the wars between Butch and Femme and more specifically Butch and F2M and Butch and trans and trans and drag kings and drag queens and all the fighting that was happening and, and all the problems that were caused by ambiguity, the great evil ambiguity. And this was tremendously fun and lots and lots of laughter was had. But the general point was being, why are we fighting over this in our own community? And that's one of the other issues is that this problem does not exist outside of our communities and is perpetrated on us, not just this does happen, but we also perpetrate it on each other. And sometimes I think that's caused by people trying to seek out privilege. They're trying to advocate for their position and they do so by pushing others down, which is problematic. I certainly saw that in early trans activism and I find it really, really, really difficult and upsetting. Sometimes you do it just out of 
some sort of strange idea that there is a singular trans narrative. And if we don't accept that, we're somehow diluting our identity. You see that in the anti-trans arguments that are online a lot. And then there are people who just believe that this is the way they are. And of course, that means everybody's like this. And I don't believe that because my trans subjectivity, and I, weirdly enough, quite binary in some regards, is very different from the majority of trans narratives that I know. But they're also very different from each other, as is the case with non-binary narratives. Now, I think it would be a mistake to say non-binary is the answer to that, because I've heard that occasionally being politically argued. I know, James <laughs> pulling a face. Because first off, that positions non-binary identities as some sort of political football, which I think is really fucked up. It negates the notion that there might be agency in non-binary subjectivities. It also negates the notion that non-binary subjectivities might just be a subjectivity and not some sort of device in order to punch other people with. And also, it's not even factually, intellectually or politically accurate. It's just a broad set of subjectivities. Now, we need to define them for personal and political reasons. There are reasons to say, let's talk about trans subjectivities and try to delineate certain characteristics. That's important. Same with non-binary identities and subjectivities. But how does one do that and not create an us and them definition? And I think that's a really, really long set of topics that are really interesting. And I know Jay has a lot of really good insight into that. <laughs> and some of it you shared now. And I've just gone on forever. That's, that's no. my way of saying I've gone on forever and I apologize. But I just trying to summarize this idea that is so difficult that it can't possibly be summed up in half an hour. So I think the idea that you suggested, Jay, is that we've introduced it now. Is that right? Kind of the once over introduction mm. is the big thing. Here's what it is. Here's some of the problems. Here's the way that it expresses itself in different ways, the intersections, the interplay that it's got between other identities, and some of the implications in terms of legal, in terms of sociological, in terms of medical. Those, I think we can dive deep into all of those really, really, really easily. And w- and, Do and you feel th- very proud of me if, you know, the non-academic has gone, hey, I understand what a societal norm is and maybe there's one around here. In that, and here's how complicated that question was. That implies that there's some sort of intellectual superiority to an academic in the sense that I should be able to understand and I'm proud of you, little, little you, pat on your head, you, for understanding what a norm is. Well done, Dr. J, pat, pat, pat. Noting, by the way, that Dr. J actually is a doctor and I'm not. <laughs> by the way this, the, implica- the, the characterization of Josephine's subjectivity as being a scholarly nerd is in fact accurate however the one of us has a PhD and it ain't her <laughs> and the other point being that I think Joe you put that really well I've never read queer theory I've lived it but I've never read it which is the there's an entire half hour about how I feel about queer theory and my relationship with it that always makes me feel nervous in these discussions. I don't think there is a scholarly basis for these arguments that you don't have. I would say it's always useful to get other voices in because we acknowledge by the very nature of this conversation that we are but one version of this subjectivity. And it would be great to have other people involved simply to ask, hey, are we right? Now, of course, as Jay said at the top of the episode, you can contact us through Twitter and we'd be very interested to hear what you think. But it would be really interesting also to have a conversation with someone else to say, what do you think about this idea? 
But Jay, I think it is a fallacy to believe that there's some sort of scholarly basis of knowledge that you don't have. As always, non-binary voices are being left out and those or, questions are not being asked. Mm, you know. Absolutely. Also, just for those who may not know, my degree, my PhD is in something really, really irrelevant and actually not very useful at this moment in time in the midst of a global pandemic because my PhD is in molecular medicine and pathology and I did quite a lot of study of virology because, you know, I just, that's, yes, it's actually turned out to be fucking useful because I can read all of the papers that are coming out and I'm actually quite up to date on what's going on with COVID. Um, and, and this is the reason Dr. J is inside, by the way, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm inside and I'm looking after myself because I'm over 50. I'm in a perimenopausal body that's considered to be obese, even though it's, it's only slightly overweight and BMI is just a bit of wank that some bastard invented. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We set up this thing of like, I'm... I know. The, it's caricature. It's fun. It's caricature, yeah. but it's yeah. not. I'm not quite the scholarly nerd in the way that Josephine is. I am very much uh, an input seeker and make things of it because I'm all about seeing patterns and connections is where my brain sits. This thing looks like that thing is something that my brain does very, very quickly. Excellent for a podcast entitled, It is Complicated. Complicated. Absolutely. So, so shall, we, shall we tie it up there and discuss what we're going to talk about next week? I think that's an excellent idea, Dr. J. I think we should finish there and discuss what it is we plan to talk about next week. She did give back an award. We she could did. Be, I know, but, but she turned it into a chance to turn around and spout more transphobia because f Jesus fucking Karen cannot stop hating on the trans, can she? So um, we're, we're, we're not going to talk about this next week. We're going to we're talk about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so are we going to discuss Jesus fucking Karen? In no way, shape, or form, <laughs> except for all the times we do. So I shall simply say, because it is our catchphrase, I'd rather not. And of course, <laughs> next week we will. Have a lovely evening, day, and or time frame. Thank you, and we'll see you later. Bye.